but hopefully not. But it's a tremendous theme uh, that your pastor and your church has given to me. And I have to say, in studying for these messages, uh, I find find myself out of my depth. uh, And to touch upon the cross and the sufferings of Christ. You know, the Lord cloaked the earth in darkness. Uh, Nobody can understand or fully comprehend. Uh, From 12 noon right through to 3 p.m., on Good Friday as we call it, the Lord cloaked the entire earth in darkness. And in fact, I have to say this, no holy angel, no human being was permitted to see the sufferings of Christ. Uh, Could I even say something else? And Maybe I'm not theologically right here. But during that time, Christ cried from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Even the Father turned his face away. Could I suggest that even the Father and the Spirit did not look upon the sorrows and sufferings of Christ? You see, he bore that awful weight of sin alone, by himself, in the darkness. No human eye, no angelic eye, I don't believe even the divine eye was upon the Son of God when he endured the undiluted wrath of God for our sins, when he took our place and suffered that terrible punishment that our soul might be saved. How enormous a debt we owe to God that it took a divine being to enter into our humanity to save us. Do you ever think of that? How big is sin? That only God alone could deal with it. And he could only do it in one way. One way. By becoming a human being. Entering into union with our nature. Bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. For the suffering of death at the cross. And we're on holy ground. And I have to say that to you. We'll have to take off our shoes now metaphorically of course. And we have to tread carefully and go softly. Uh, We're going, trust, I trust, we're going to see some things that we have seen before. And I hope and pray some things that will come new and fresh to your heart and bless your soul. I want just to bow briefly in prayer and commit ourselves to the Lord as we would preach on the cross this evening. Our gracious and our eternal loving Father, we always stand in human weakness when we come to handle the word of life. We stand in human insufficiency and inability. And even when we're not at our best and we don't know when that is. Lord, we cry to thee for help. (coughs) Not that we are sufficient of ourselves. To think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Who maketh us able ministers of the New Testament. Lord, we're only an earthen vessel. Lord, we recognize the power and the excellency and the glories of God. And we desire, Lord, to stand forth now as a candidate for the infilling of the Spirit of the living God. I pray, Lord, that thou wouldst look upon this, me, thy servant, and grant unto me, O God, I pray, and that cleansing through the blood, and that mighty infilling of thy Holy Spirit. I pray for that endowment of power from on high. I pray, Lord, for that unction. I ask, Lord, for the uh, infilling of the Spirit with wisdom and with power. And, Father, in answer now to prayer, be pleased to bless thy word in the salvation of the lost, the restoration of the backslider, the reviving of thy church, and the glorifying of thy Son. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious and worthy name. And the people of God said, Amen. You know, friends, the central theme of Holy Scripture is the cross 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you consider the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the Old Testament, it looked forward to that historical event. Most of its prophecies and ceremonies and foreshadowings all centered around the cross. You couldn't understand the Old Testament economy. You could not understand all the rites and rituals of the Old Testament unless you viewed it in the light of the finished work of the cross and the sufferings of Christ. While the New Testament looks back on that historical occurrence with most of its teaching given over to explaining the meaning and expounding the message of the cross. Every type and every ceremony, every rite and ritual of the Old Testament economy all find their fulfillment at the cross. In fact, God's plan of salvation, his means of reconciling himself to sinful, fallen men and women like us, God's method of rescuing and redeeming a lost mankind unto himself, all center at the cross. God's love, God's mercy, his grace, his compassionate and And his benevolence all are found at the cross. Alongside that, his righteousness, his inflexible justice, everything about his purity and his holiness, every single attribute of God, whether it's his goodness or his righteousness, whether it's his holiness or whether it's his compassion, they're all displayed and they're all satisfied fully at the cross. You have to agree with me that sinners, irrespective of class, color, creed or religion, young or old alike, have all been gloriously saved by no other way than through the preaching of the message of the cross. The cross, I believe, is the only hope for sinners. It is the ground and triumph for every believer and it is the joy of heaven forevermore. And I say this with respect to every single person in this house and listening online as well. If you miss the cross, you're lost. You're damned and doomed. It's over. There is no other way God can pardon, forgive and save your soul but through the cross. And therefore it is true that we need to keep the cross preeminent. It would be a terrible thing to hear a message and you would call it a Christless message. I have listened and I do listen to quite a number of preachers to help myself to see what they're preaching on, their style, to see their, listen to their theology, their application of the gospel. And I do tend to listen <clears throat> to quite a lot of men. And I want to say this to you, one evangelical individual in one of his messages, I have to say this, it was a Christless sermon, a complete Christless sermon. Oh, the structure was good. Homiletically, you would say it was sound in the sense of all the structure and the alliteration, the build-up, the introduction, everything. But there was something missing. It was what I call a Christless sermon. I'm not going to tell you who that person is. I'm not going to tell you because that sermon is still online. You can still listen to it today. It was a Christless sermon. It's an amazing thing that someone who says they're evangelical could stand up in a gospel meeting. That's right. 
in a gospel meeting and fail to mention the cross and fail to mention the blood and fail to mention the, the substitutionary work of the cross. So it's important that we keep the cross before us in the preaching of the gospel because we heard that uh, as our minister mentioned thinking this afternoon of those words in, in, in the church to the church at Corinth where the preaching of the cross to them that perish is foolishness but unto us which believe it is the power of the dynamite of God. In this series of meetings God willing I want to take you on a journey to the cross and a little further we want to go to the empty tomb as well because that's part of the gospel message. The resurrection is as much part of the gospel as is the death and blood shedding of Christ. We must tread carefully and I trust that you'll come humbly. We want to contemplate the cross upon which Christ suffered, Christ died and Christ paid the price for our sins. I want to think this evening as we consider the cross, we've called this series of meetings the path to Calvary. Or Christ's journey to the cross. Can I say something? We mention it a little later on as well. But that journey really began at his birth. Of course it did. But in earnest it began in the upper room in John 13. It was there when he said he desired. With desire have I desired to eat this Passover meal with you. We believe that that was the Thursday evening. We reckon it was about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, going right through maybe till about 8 or 9 o'clock, maybe in the evening, maybe even to 10 or 11. We believe that he reached the Garden of Gethsemane through the Valley of Kidron. And it was there. By the way, it's very interesting, isn't it? The Garden of Gethsemane. It really means olive. It means those olives that are pressed beyond measure and it was in that garden there at the Mount of Olives where they pressed those olives and to get the juice out of them that's where Christ went and it was there that he sweated great drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane and we'll look at some of those things in the trial and crucifixion of Christ we want to think this evening on Christ's journey to the cross first of all I want you to think in this series of meetings of the trial and the crucifixion of Christ. So we're going to basically summarize everything that we intend to say. And then we're going to take you on a journey. We will look at the thorns of Christ. We will look at that truth or testimony from Christ. That's very interesting. When Christ spoke to the daughters of Jerusalem. Do you know what he said to them? Does anybody know what he said to them? You don't have to answer me by the way. What did Christ say to the daughters of Jerusalem? How important would that statement be? In light of the cross, I'll tell you it's very important when he speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem on his way to Calvary. And then we want to think about the very title that Pilate wrote and placed upon Christ, whether it was upon his person as he walked, but it certainly was nailed to the cross. We have every reason to believe through the study of history that that was a custom, a tradition, and that those who were so-called criminals as they marched to their crucifixion they carried a nameplate and a message to tell people what they were guilty of, just to add a little more to their shame. It's a bit like saying Thomas Martin, possession of firearms, false imprisonment, and then you're sentenced. You walk through the crowd carrying this piece of timber on a piece of string strapped to your body, and then it's nailed to the cross and lifted up. We want to consider the title that Christ carried and then bore above his cross. And then we want to think about the resurrection. 
So that will be in all of these meetings in the will of the Lord. But you would agree coming up to the Easter time we're drawn more and more to think about the events that lead to the trial and crucifixion of Christ and concluding in his resurrection from the dead. Now from a near human standpoint the events seem to be tragic and unfair and they are. It's the greatest tragedy or travesty of justice in the entire world. The greatest miscarriage of justice. What happened to Christ. Everything about his trial was unjust. The Jews broke every single law that they should have abided by. Every single law. As one commentator, I'm not going into detail here, uh, he outlined about seven or eight laws that the Jews actually broke in order to make sure Christ was crucified. And they hurried up the trial because they began in earnest about midnight. About midnight on Thursday, if you project your mind to this Thursday, Christ was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane about midnight when Judas came with a band of soldiers and the torches and they arrested him in the garden and the disciples were sleeping because it was late at night. And furthermore, they took him then to try him and they tried him all night. There was never a trial was permitted by the Jews at night. Never. Every single rule was broken. And then Pilate. And then Herod. And then back to Pilate. Every single law of Roman law was broken as well. Pilate found no fault in him. Yet he had him scourged. And then he had him crucified. How wicked, how sinful, how evil is that? And whenever you think of it from a mere human standpoint, the events of Calvary seem to be unfair. And they seem to be tragic. But when viewed from a biblical perspective, they are a perfect plan designed by an all-loving and an all-wise God whereby he would save a lost mankind. Christ's death on the cross was no mistake. Rather, it was what is known as the preordained will of an all-powerful and an ever-loving God to save sinners like you and a sinner like me from the terrible consequences of our sin in hell. The Bible predicted with meticulous accuracy every single thing about Christ's life and everything about Christ's birth and everything about Christ's death and everything about his resurrection, his ascension into heaven and even his second coming and even events after the Lord returns to this earth. It was Micah who told us where Christ would be born, Bethlehem. It was Isaiah who told us how Christ would be born by a virgin, never heard of in all of the world. And then the psalmist in Psalm 41 reminds us that Christ would be betrayed by his closest friend, Judas Iscariot. And Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, they're only called minor prophets because uh, their books are not as long as Ezekiel or Isaiah. They're just as major as any other prophet, by the way. But Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, tells us the very price of that betrayal. 30 pieces of silver. And furthermore, Isaiah, under inspiration of God, he furnishes us with the sorrows and the sufferings of Christ there. And Isaiah 52 at the end, his visage marred more than any man. And then Isaiah 53, outlining the terrible sorrows and sufferings of Christ when he became the substitute for sinners. And then the psalmist David, projecting his mind and his thoughts to the resurrection. He said in Psalm 16 of the Lord, Thou wilt not leave thine holy one, or not see him to see corruption, and you'll not leave him in the grave. It's a reference, if you go to the book of Acts, right from Psalm 16 to the resurrection of Christ, I want to tell you Calvary was no mistake. It was the perfect plan 
of an all-powerful, all-wise and ever-loving God to save a sinner like you. So the Bible foretold all that would happen to God's dear Son, from his birth to his resurrection, even to his second coming. Christ had to endure these sorrows and sufferings. And child of God, can I say something to you? These meetings are as much for you as they are for the unconverted. Very simply because you must view every single trial of Christ, every hand that's put upon him. You should view the spittle upon his face, the ripping of the hair from off his beard and the nailing him to the cross, the scourging of his body. You must view that in light of the plan of redemption. It has to be viewed in the light of your union with Christ. Everything he suffered from the very first person who inflicted pain upon the body of Christ. And who was he? He was one of the Pharisees. When he took his hand, literally his fist, and he smashed it into the mouth of Christ. And we know that from the word that Christ uses. Because it says he smote him. And when Christ answered, he used a different word. And the word literally means to draw blood. To literally burst open. And when Christ was speaking, blood was pushing out of his mouth from a cut lip and a busted mouth by the slap he received from one of the religious leaders. It's a remarkable thing that he did this to the creator and to Christ in order to keep him quiet, to silence him, that he wouldn't speak. That's what he did. And it was contrary to the law. Contrary to the law. I want to tell you Christ must be lifted up to die. And child of God, you must view all of what I'm going to say tonight and through this incoming week in the light of the plan of redemption and your union with Christ because everything he suffered was for you. Everything he endured at the hands of men and then at the hand of God his Father when he was the substitute for sinners, I want you to view it in the light of your union with Christ. He had to endure it for you. That's how you must view the sorrows and sufferings of Christ. There's no other way for a child of God to view this. He does not need your tears. He does not need your sympathy. He does not need your pity. I want to tell you he is the son of God who bore in full strength as a human being and as deity veiled in humanity. I believe deity held, upheld humanity at the cross when Christ endured the undiluted. That's right. Remember, undiluted. Romans 8 tells us God spurred not his own son. He didn't weaken it down. If it was your child, you would ask for leniency. If it was your son, you would pray that the judge and others would treat them kindly and not give them a harsh sentence. But God spurred not the undiluted wrath of God poured out upon our sin on the body, the sinless body of Christ. It's the greatest love story you'll ever hear. The most powerful, positive message that'll ever fall upon human ears. And we want to think tonight of the trial and crucifixion of Christ. First of all, I want you to consider the contempt there was in this trial for Christ. Scripture reminds us of the contempt there would be for Christ when he came into this world. Isaiah prophesied, did he not, in Isaiah 53, that he was despised and rejected of men. Now think of it, despised. And then he was rejected of men, acquainted with grief. And the Bible says that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This contempt was manifest through certain individuals, and then it was manifest through collective religious and political bodies. 
In fact, I want to tell you now that same contempt for Christ is manifest in the world in which we live. It hasn't changed. Christ is still despised. Christ is still rejected. Christ is not esteemed by few people in this world, if you think about it. You try to hand someone a gospel tract, they look at you with disdain. There's a contempt there. How dare you give me one of those? You and your God and your Christ and your gospel. He's still hated today. We still feel his reproach today. We feel, still feel what it was meant for Christ whenever he was rejected and despised of individuals. And you know, there may be someone here tonight and you wouldn't put yourself in that category of individuals. You wouldn't say, well, I don't despise Christ. I don't reject Christ. I don't have Christ in low esteem. Well, I want to tell you, if you're not saved tonight, then you do. You hold him in contempt. You are despising him when you do not accept his claim of lordship over your life. You are rejecting him when you do not come to him and receive him in repentance and faith as your own and personal saviour. I want to tell you that this contempt was not only identified in individuals but in religious and political leaders. I want you to think of the contempt there was from Judas Iscariot. You have it there in chapter 18. Look what it says there in verse 2. It says, And Judas also which betrayed him knew the place where Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. And you know the story. I don't have to relate it to you. But can I just bring you to that point where Judas is now? The Bible says in chapter 18 that Jesus went out. You know where he was? You've got to think of it like this. Let me project you to this Thursday coming, God willing. To about 3 p.m. In the, in the afternoon. It's there that Jesus meets in the upper room. Now we're not saying that it was a building and he was upstairs. It was just a room. It could have been literally a canopy. It was divorced from the family who lived in that house. And with desire, he desired to eat the Passover meal with his disciples that Thursday evening. And so they gathered. And, we, and the first thing the Lord did there in that upper room was this. The disciples themselves were arguing and fighting over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. So when they first came in, they were walking the dirt of Israel and their feet were dirty. And it should have been custom. You know the beloved John had leaned on the breast of Jesus? Where is he? I don't find him girding himself with a towel and washing the feet of Peter. These disciples were arguing who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And if they felt that they were greater than another, they were not going to stoop down and wash another disciple's feet. And so the Lord took a towel himself and he girded himself and he washed their feet. And the reason he did that for was because he was teaching them a lesson. If you want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you must be servant to all. Not one of those disciples washed another disciple's feet. Or we can talk about the great Peter. Where is he here? He's not washing the beloved John's feet. We don't find that one bit. We don't see Andrew washing his brother's feet. One brother washing another. We don't find it. In this upper room before the Lord began his discourse in the upper room. Before he left to go to Gethsemane and then to the house of Annas, the former high priest. The Lord set them a great example. And then he began to talk to them. And he talked to them late into the night. I reckon they had the Passover meal. And then the Bible says that they gathered together. And when they gathered together, the Lord spoke to them. 
John chapter 13. He brought them into John 14. He spoke about comforting their hearts, letting not their heart be troubled. And then he brought them into John 15. And he spoke about himself being the true vine. And then he spoke about in John 16, about overcoming the world and having faith in him and being of good cheer. And then John 17, he gave them and they listened to his high priestly prayer in the upper room. And you'll find that John chapter 13, it's the only block of Holy Scripture that you'll find and discover that it only covers a single night. That's all it covers. This Thursday coming, if you want to look at it on the calendar, about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, the Lord there was washing their feet. They had the Passover meal. He then gave them the upper room discourse, and we believe they sung a hymn, and they went out. I believe personally that they sung what is known as the Halal. And I hope I'm right here because I've no notes in front of me. Psalm 113 through to 118. Would that be right, Ian? Is that right? He says, I've got Rabbi Harris here, so he says it's right, so we're okay. And they sung, I believe they sung the Halal. Have you ever heard it sung? Go on to Google. Listen to Jews sing the Halal. The Psalms 113 through 118. I was going to say, I'll make the hairs in your head stand up, but I'll make the hairs in my back of my head stand up. The tremendous singing of the halal in Hebrew. I believe that's what Christ and his disciples sung. The Psalms 113 through 118. The blessed Psalms of praise. He was going to the cross. Read through those Psalms and read them. And if you want to sing them from the hymn book, then sing them. Sing them in the light of the cross. Christ sung them in the light of Calvary. There's a context, at least for some of those psalms. Can I say to you that when he left the upper room, Judas already gone. The Lord Jesus Christ made his way through the Kidron Valley. I've been studying the geographical positions in the old Jerusalem just from my own personal study and watching videos and documentaries, historical, not all scriptural, by the way, not all based on Bible, but just on Israel. And I've been studying them, looking at them. They're very interesting for my own heart's good. But Christ left, if you take the old Jerusalem on the map, he's down here at the southern part, and he, he makes his way through the Kidron Valley. Some commentators believe that he gave the discourse as he journeyed to the Mount of Olives. When he reached the Mount of Olives, he found the Garden of Gethsemane, and he entered into it. And it was there, as you know, the disciples slept as the Lord contemplated the cross and the bitter cup that he had to drink for us. It was then that Judas came with a band of soldiers from the high priest and from the Pharisees with torches and swords and staves. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And here's what he says, I am he. He used the divine name, I am. And once he mentioned, I am, all fell backward. They all fell backward. Every single one of them. It's very interesting that in the charismatic movement, whenever people are slain in the spirit, they never fall on their face to the ground before the Lord. They all fall back. I don't want to introduce you to charismatic movement, but I've studied some of their services, and every single one of them slapped on the head and they all fall back. The ones I find falling back are the enemies of Christ. You see, if you meet with the Lord, you'll fall on your face in the dirt, not fall on your back. But his enemies did. It was there that Christ was arrested. He was first of all brought for three religious trials. The first trial was in the house of Annas. It was like a pre-trial. He was the former high priest. He was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, the present high priest. 
And he went there to be arraigned, questioned, charged with blasphemy. And then he was taken from Annas' house to Caiaphas' house. Uh, if you want the timing, around about one o'clock he was in Annas' house. And then he moved to about three o'clock to the house of Caiaphas. It was there the religious leaders were gathered. No Jewish trial was ever allowed at night. And yet they held this mock court in order to get rid of Christ as soon as they could. Better to get rid of him before the Passover. And we'll have done with him when there's so many people in Jerusalem. And so Caiaphas questioned him. Nobody asked him, what about your doctrine? Most important thing he asked him, what about your disciples? I'll tell you why he asked about the disciples, because that's all he was concerned about. You see, the Pharisees were jealous. They didn't like anybody else having followers more than them. So they asked him not only about his doctrine, they knew full well what he taught. They asked him about his disciples. How many disciples have you in Jerusalem? Have you any in Galilee? What a way up there in Mount Hermon? What a way down in the south? Have you any there? What about near Jericho, all down there? Have you any down there? Where's your disciples? Where are they? Are they all gathered here in Jerusalem now? Or do you have them right across the entire nation of Israel? What about your disciples? They were jealous that the Lord had all these followers and believers. And they were envious of, of, of Christ. And they handed him over for jealousy and for envy. And the political leaders understood clearly. That's why they handed him over. And then the Bible tells me that he was basically sent. And then he was retried by Caiaphas. But can I tell you something between roughly 3 p.m. and about 4 or 5 in the morning, Friday morning, Good Friday as we call it. That's whenever Caiaphas was trying Christ twice. Annas, then Caiaphas, then a break. During the break, the religious leaders, you'll read about the religious leaders, not the Roman soldiers. They took their hand and they slapped Christ. They spat upon him. And they buffeted him and, and they mistreated him. I watched in my garden. My wife called me out the other day. And she says, quickly, come, do you see this? And there was this huge black cat in our garden. And he says, it's got something. It's playing with it. And it was a little mouse. And I watched that cat play, tease. And then let on, it wasn't interested. It literally looked around. And once the wee mouse moved, it bounced on it. And then it let it go. And the grass was soaking so that the mouse was actually like a skeleton. And all the hair was wet. I saw it. And the mouse with fear in its eyes. And the cat just playing with it. Throwing it up in the air. Catching it in its mouth when it hit the ground. And you know they were playing with Christ. These were the Pharisees. The religious leaders. And they slapped him. And they spat upon him. Treated him with absolute contempt. You know the Bible tells me. That whenever he was in Caiaphas. And he said about his doctrine. You know what the Lord said. My doctrine? Why do you ask me that? You know full well about my doctrine. You know exactly about my doctrine. You know full well what I taught. I taught it publicly in the temple. In fact, some of you people were there. You heard me. Ask those around you. And they'll tell you what I believe. And then one of the religious leaders, one of the Pharisees, took his hand and he punched Christ in the mouth. And the Bible tells me that it says, and he smote him on the mouth. And then the Lord Jesus Christ says, why smitest thou me? And he used a different word. And the word that Christ used literally means to break the skin. 
It literally means to bust the lip. And if you were standing there and you would have heard that blow. If your back was turned to Christ and you didn't know what happened. You knew that flesh had hit flesh. You knew it. And the slap just echoed through that room. And the blood literally was gushing out of his mouth. And when Christ said to Caiaphas. When he said to him. And he said to the man that smote him. Why? If I have spoken good. Why did you slap me? If evil. You haven't even the right to slap me. Until it was proved that I was wrong. And so you can see the blood gushing from his mouth. Falling down into his beard. Oh what contempt. They had for Christ. And then he was handed over to Pilate. Pilate examined him and found no fault in him. Rushed to and fro from the pavement. Just a really a, 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 a place that was really exalted. And it had literally stones on it. And Pilate sat there like a, some great judge. Pontificating over people. He left and he spoke to the Jews. And he came back three times or twice sorry. Then he sent them to Herod. And then he tried him again. Found no fault in him. It's an amazing thing that at least seven times it's said in scripture. And maybe even more actually. Maybe even more. That they found no fault in him. This just man. Done nothing amiss. Right throughout those gospels. I think some commentators say there are 16 references. To Christ's innocence. In the gospels. The greatest travesty of justice. Ever in the history of the world. Was what happened to Jesus Christ in his trial. And his crucifixion. But you know something? The contempt of Judas. Judas saw the miracles of Christ. He saw the compassion and the love that Christ had for the poor. The sinner. The lost. He saw it all. He saw Christ vindicated by the healing of the sick and the raising of the dead. And yet in the midst of it all. Pilate, or sorry, uh, Judas. He had the bag. He was a thief. And he had so much contempt for Christ that he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. And that's what he got. And it was no good to him. Can I say this to you? That there are many and they do the same. They hold up Christ for contempt for what? They would rather have a night's pleasure than accept Christ as their saviour. They would have, rather have another drink or another cigarette or another line of cocaine or they never have a, a, some injection of drug into their body. They would rather have a night's pleasure. They would rather have their sin and their lust and all their carnality than Christ and they would sell Christ for anything. David Shanks was a man who went to our church in Lisburn and that man, I met him in his own home and asked him was he saved and he said he wasn't and he told me the reason why he wasn't saved. Do you know what he said? He says, I'm not saved because I like to gamble. And he says, I have gambled and nobody knows that. You're the first one I've ever told. But I'll tell you why I'm not saved. I like to gamble. Can I tell you something? I arrived a few weeks later and I asked him, David, did you ever think about the conversation we had? Here's what he said. I did and I've never gambled since. Isn't that an amazing thing? You know what I said, David? Would you not like to come to Christ? And he says, I would. I would. I didn't really know what to do. He took me by surprise. I had the joy of pointing David Shanks to the Lord. A few weeks later he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. But eight weeks later he was in God's eternity. But thankfully he came to Christ. And trusted Christ as his own and personal saviour. I wonder what you would sell Christ for. I wonder exactly what the price would be for you holding Christ in contempt. Can I tell you something my brother David. He got saved on the 31st of July 1983. The same year as me. And David, 
knew that he needed to get saved. He was in the maze prison, sure to sell with three other men. And he was afraid of what those boys would say to him. They would stop him. And he wasn't going to come to Christ for fear of individuals. I wonder what you would sell Christ for. Can I say this to you? A man came to my house during a mission we were doing in a tent in Lisburn. And he says, I need to see you. You called him Raymond. I think his first name was Raymond. And he came to my house and says, I need to see you. And he came that afternoon the next day and he came into my house and he says, you know, I've been attending these meetings, going to the gospel meetings. I says, I know that and we're glad to see you. He says, I'm not saved, you know. Right. But I'd like to get saved. I want to get saved. And I wanted to get saved last night. But you know the reason why I'm not saved? I says, why? Now, what do you hear this? My wife has told me that if I get saved at those meetings, their marriage is over. Now, friends, how would you deal with that? My wife told me that if I get saved at these meetings, my marriage is over. She'll walk away. She'll walk away. And he says, Reverend Martin, what will I do? And I said to him these words. I says, whether she'll walk away or not, you've got to think of your soul. Your soul's more important than even your marriage. And you mightn't agree with me, but I could not get away from the fact that he needed to be saved. And I says, you should come to Christ and trust the Savior, and then we'll pray for your wife, that God will touch her heart. He got saved. He went home. And guess what? His wife never walked away. She stayed in that marriage, and she's there to this day. In fact, he has gotten her out to church. I don't know if she's saved or not. I really don't know. But he came around two weeks later to thank me, and he brought me a box of milk tray. Let me tell you, they didn't last too long in our house. Nobody got any of them. Uh, but he thanked me and he says, you know, the wife's still there and I've got her out to church. Amazing, isn't it? Whatever it is you're worried about tonight, sinner, you come to Christ, you get saved. You have not only the, the contempt of Judas, but one of the religious leaders, think of the contempt whenever they struck the Lord in the face, whenever they buffeted the Lord. You think of Pilate and the contempt that he held Christ in. You have not only the contempt in this trial but I want you to think of the chastening there was for Christ in this trial it tells us there in John's gospel straightway or sorry in Mark's gospel chapter 15 it tells us straightway in the morning the chief priests held a consultation so if you look at it like this it was round about five o'clock in the morning before they sent Christ over to Pilate so the Lord was kept from sleep and they buffeted him and they slapped him and they spat upon him and then in the morning Caiaphas had the final trial and they charged him with blasphemy but they couldn't put him to death themselves. Not, they could have done it, by the way, under Jewish law. Of course they could. But Roman law said that no Jew could ever put a man or a woman to death. So therefore, even though they said he was charged with blasphemy and our law must put him to death, they said, under our law, Pilate, we can't put him to death because Roman law has forbidden Jewish law to be enacted in the land. And therefore we cannot put this man to death. And you need to do it. So they had trumped up charges then. Rather than blasphemy, they said this man's a, a rebel. Uh, this man is inciting violence. And he's causing people to riot on the streets. And this man could literally uh, cause treason. And he says he's a king by the way, Pilate. And he usurps the authority of Caesar. And you wouldn't want Caesar to hear that there was a man claiming to be king. And you haven't dealt with him in your jurisdiction. And so they had this trumped up uh, uh, case whereby they said he's a king and therefore he's about to take over the throne can I tell you something that Christ was no threat to Caesar 
No threat to Caesar. Christ said to Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. Else if it were, I would arm my men. He even told Peter in the garden, didn't he? When he said, put up thy sword. When he cut the high priest's uh, servant's ear off, Malchus, put up thy sword. The Lord could have called 10,000 angels. He could have dealt with all his enemies. But he says, my kingdom's not of this world. So Pilate, I am a king. You have told the truth. Although we mock Pilate. They told you that, by the way. Or did you just come up with that yourself? Or had somebody tell you that, Pilate? And Pilate just went back again. And said, I find no fault in him. He's no threat to Caesar or to me. It's your problem. But they wouldn't deal with it. And then Pilate tried, cries, cries. You know one of the worst things I find in scripture? It says, and then Pilate delivered him to be scourged. How wicked and cruel that is. But I want you to remember, child of God especially, that all this is in the light and in the plan of redemption. You've got to see that Christ was unfairly treated for you. You've got to see, sinner, that Christ was scourged, spat upon, his hair ripped off his face, and he was buffeted and he was crowned with thorns. And you know, when Pilate brought him out, he was literally scourged, so the blood was running down his garment. His beard was plucked off and the, and the mouth was busted. The blood was congealing there. And then the thorns on his brow, what a spectacle. And Pilate brought him out to the Jews and he says, behold the man. Do you know when he said that? I do believe he was saying something like this. Look at him. Look what you've made me do to an innocent man. I've scourged him, is it not enough? I've crowned him, my soldiers have crowned him with thorns. Is that not enough? You yourselves have buffered him. Look at the cut of him. You've busted his face open. We've plucked the hair off his face. We've scourged him. Is it not enough? Behold the man. Have a look at him. Come on. What more do you want me to do to this man? And they said, crucify him. Put him to death. And he did it all for you. Now think of it. He did it all for you. He could have stopped it at any time. He could have said, that's enough. No more. All the injury and pain afflicted on his body. But worse was to come. I want you to think not only of the contempt and the chastening. And I'm going through this, by the way, pretty quick. I want you to think of the crucifixion in this trial. Christ, after he'd suffered all at the hands of wicked and cruel men. It's interesting, by the way, there's not a single statement in Scripture when man touched the body of Christ. Not a single statement when they touched the body of Christ. Then he was led, carrying his cross, bearing the title thorn-crowned. He was spiked to an old Roman gibbet. The Bible says he was lifted up and they jammed the timber in, I believe at that point, that his bones came out of joint. And Isaiah 52 came in to its own. His visage was marred more than any man. On that cross... It wasn't the form of a man. If you were walking by the cross and you were a visitor at the Passover and you were getting in late and you were looking at those three crosses, the middle cross, you would say, what is that? That's not a human being. What is that being crucified? And then he would have read the title. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And he's seen the crowd sitting. 
you've heard the centurion and many others saying, truly this is the Son of God. You'd hear even one of the thieves shouting at the end, we justly, but this man has done nothing amiss. And yet he did it all, and he suffered it all for sinners like us. There on the cross, God cloaked the word in darkness and hid from view the sorrows and sufferings of Christ. That's why I'm telling you, none of us could ever fathom, nor could we, and I'm doing an injustice to the sorrows and sufferings of Christ tonight. I cannot convey to you, not even in the sacred language of Hebrew, never mind murdered English that I speak, could I tell you what it meant for Christ the Holy One to bear, to bear away our sin, to stand as our substitute. And between a holy God and sinful fallen men and women, die in such agony and pain and sorrow. I believe he endured the hell that we deserved. Darkness, separation. Did you not hear him cry? I thirst. Can I say something to you? Christ was offered on two occasions something to drink. The first time Christ refused it. The second time it touched his lips and he took it. What was the difference? I'm going to tell you what the difference was. The first time Christ was offered vinegar and gall, it was a mixture to ease the pain. It was literally like morphine to kill the pain. And Christ refused pain relief at the cross. He only took the vinegar at the end when they literally pushed it toward his lips but he didn't turn away. The remarkable thing is this. You see the pictures in the children's books and in canvas and they're all wrong because they have Christ with his head down. The Bible tells me, the Bible tells me that whenever Christ died, he bowed the head. His head was always up. He was praying, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He was praying for Mary. He was praying for John. He even said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. His head was up. Christ was in his full strength even at the cross. And deity upholding humanity, Christ bore the wrath and the fire of God's judgment upon our sin. Now I say this in closing and I do so with a sense of deep and profound humility. Where do you stand with God tonight? Is it nothing to you? Nothing. That Christ suffered. Christ died. Christ endured such wrath. Is it nothing? Can you go out of this meeting house tonight and have no feeling, no affection, no interest in the Son of the living God? Can you? Can you go out through those doors and trample under your feet and treat with contempt the blood of the everlasting covenant? Can you walk over the body of Christ at the door tonight and trample under your feet the sinless, spotless body of Christ which was broken for you? Can you? Can you really do that? It's not not the sin that would take you immediately to hell if God so willed it. Oh, tonight, 
You need to do the right thing with the Son of God. You need to come to Christ. You need to repent of your sin and believe that he alone can save you. And in coming to him, I tell you, he will save you. Because he rose from the dead, his sacrifice is accepted. And if you'll come by faith to him now and trust him, he will save you. Whosoever will may come. Him that cometh to me, I'll in no wise cast out. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Young person, older person, boy, girl, listen to me. Look at me. If you come to Christ tonight, repent and believe, he will save you. He will save you now. Child of God, you leave this house tonight prayerfully and very, very carefully, pondering the things you have heard. And I trust you'll draw closer to Christ.